Welcome to Speaking of Human Milk, where we give you bite-sized episodes on the latest science and innovation surrounding human milk. This podcast is brought to you by Prolacta Bioscience, a company dedicated to advancing the science of human milk. I'm your host, registered dietitian Kelly Hawthorne. Today we will be speaking with Amy Paradise, a neonatal nurse practitioner and clinical nurse specialist with over 30 years of experience working in the neonatal, neonatal intensive care unit. Amy is at a level three NICU in Central California and is a member of NPAC, Prolacta's Nursing Practice Advisory Council. I have known Amy for many years and it is always a pleasure to speak with her. She's a great trusted friend and a wonderful neonatal ICU colleague. Today we are be we'll be talking about the role of an exclusive human milk diet in reducing sepsis in the NICU. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Kelly. It's so good to hear your voice. Yours too. So before we get started, how are you doing in the midst of everything happening here in 2020? Oh, 2020. Well, yes, it has been an interesting year so far, to say the least, as I sure it has been for all of us. It is a, it is a strange time. Um, I am fortunate to say that my family has remained COVID-free, and we are uh, believers in all those necessary measures, distancing and hand-washing and wearing our masks. And I just want to give a shout-out to all of those uh, that are doing their part to keep our community safe. It is what is going to help move us through this pandemic. And as we discussed, infection control practices are very important, and they work. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We always will take a plug for hand washing and mask wearing. And so for our listeners who don't know you as well as I do, tell us a little bit about how you got into neonatal care and your experience in the NICU. Sure thing, Kelly. So my first job was actually in a neonatal intensive care unit. I started out as a student nurse. I mean, how lucky can you get? I've taken care of NICU babies my entire nursing career. Uh, I'm was fortunate enough to work in uh, level three NICUs back in the 80s, starting my practice working at Oakland Children's, Los Angeles Children's, Valley Children's Hospitals, as well uh, as working on the East Coast at the Westchester County Medical Center and Pacific Coast at Natividad Medical Center. So um, lots of experience around the country. Uh, I've worn many hats, including being an ECMO specialist, transport, charge nurse, an educator for a while. But since 2005, I have been a neonatal nurse practitioner and clinical nurse specialist. I graduated from the University of California, San Francisco. Currently, my home is a 35-bed NICU, a community level uh, in Central California. And I have passions, many passions, but I would say infection control and sepsis are very, very high on my list. I always think of you as such a California girl that I, I don't even think of you as being anywhere else in the country, but but of course you have experience everywhere. So moving I've gotten around a bit over the 30 years. <laughs> That's great. It's so great because then you have all of these experiences. So for our topic for today, what do we know about sepsis and its effects on a baby? So just to break it down a little bit, sepsis is an infection in the blood. Most of the time caused by different types of bacteria, E. coli, listeria, some strains of streptococcus, um, but it can also be a fungus, a parasite, even viruses, which are uh, a little more rare. 
Sometimes the baby can get infected through the amniotic fluid of the mother or uh, through the process of birth. This is called early onset infection. We take care of a lot of low birth weight and premature babies in the NICU, and they are at the highest risk of sepsis. We know this because they have an immature immune system, and they are, are unable to battle overwhelming infections. Their symptoms can be very mild or subtle, we like to say, is not feeding well, unstable temperatures, fever, reduced body movements, diarrhea. Severe cases, though, can um, lead to shock or overwhelming swelling uh, and organ failure in the body. And we monitor babies very closely in the NICU. Sepsis is always on our radar. Um, we're watching closely for that early or what we call late on sepsis or what's called a CLABC. And to keep everybody on the same page, what is CLABC? So CLABC makes some of us in the NICU cringe a little bit, but it stands for a central line associated bloodstream infection. That's terminology that we use in the hospital to identify this type of infection. Central lines are things like umbilical, arterial, and venous catheters, or peripherally inserted central catheters, the lifelines that we use to give adequate nutrition medications to our babies in the NICU. Yes, it is a very serious concern. They have to have those lines, of course, as you said. They're their lifelines, um, but the infection is, is quite serious. So how has your NICU addressed infection control and prevention of late-onset sepsis? In 2008, we had a high-level collapse. We were part, uh, and we are ongoing partners with Statewide Collaborative, which is part of a national collaborative, the Vermont-Oxford Network. And we monitor things like rates of infection, and we were outliers. We had greater than six infections per thousand line days. That's the metric that we use to monitor our rates. And compared to other statewide data, we were um, higher than we should be. So we were invited to join a statewide collaborative, and the goal was to address best practices, look at the emerging evidence of infection control, and implementation of quality improvement projects, what was working in other units to keep the rates low. So we developed our own committee, the NICU-FBI, uh, which stood for Fight Bacterial Infection. And we set a goal. We wanted to reach 100 days without a collapse, and we wanted to decrease our total rate of infection by 50% within the year. We thought this was going to be a very tall order, but we developed an infection control bundle and implemented many best practices, uh, such as a robust hand hygiene regimen, the implementation of alcohol gel at the bedside. I don't know if you all remember what it was like to work in the hospital before you had alcohol gel uh, all over at every bedside. We also uh, implemented a stringent hub care for all our vascular access devices with the use of chlorhexidine gluconate and alcohol on the hub before all access. And we developed a strict criteria for the diagnosis and the management of bloodstream infections. Within the year, we saw a dramatic drop in our rates of infection for CLABS and all BSI. And after that, uh, those efforts over the last 12 years, we've only had two CLABSI. So we are quite proud of that. We believe in zero infections and that you can accomplish that. That is a remarkable success story. And also kind of, uh, wow, to reflect back on times before hand sanitizer was part of our uh, day-to-day, uh, moment-by-moment lives. Uh, but those are really great practical things that other NICUs can do as well. 
so moving from those hands-on practices, let's, of course, get back to nutrition, because that's where I always like to talk about. Um, so tell us about the role of nutrition and the exclusive human milk diet in your NICU and that impact on your NICU's rate of infection. So we implemented the exclusive human milk diet in our NICU in late 2016. Uh, we already had a low incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, we had implemented a donor milk program uh, earlier in 2012, but we wanted to eliminate neck and we wanted to improve growth. And uh, we implemented the exclusive human milk diet. And in 2017, we uh, developed a unit-based feeding protocol. I had tried for many years to try to get all our practitioners and providers on the same page and feed babies the same way. I really didn't think it was possible, but we did it. And we have implemented this feeding pathway and have had great buy-in with our team, extraordinary compliance. Our nurses love it. Having the expectation of what is the feeding plan today instead of kind of the, the doc of the day or the NP of the day management. It's been wonderful. We have found that the exclusive human milk diet leads to quicker advancement to full feeding. On average, our babies in the 1,000 to 1,500 gram group uh, weight category are reached full feedings by day 11. And we've seen uh, a lower total number of babies in our unit less than 1,000 grams, so it's difficult for me to quantify uh, average days to full feeding for that population because there can be such a wide variance in the severity of illness. So it makes it difficult to say, but in that very low birth weight population, we have seen our central line days decrease. We've also seen a dramatic decrease in feeding intolerance. This is when we have to stop feedings or halt the feeding advancement, either stop fortification or stop feedings altogether. And this can be due to things like uh, abdominal distension, gastric residuals, emesis, bloody stools. So we have seen a lot less of that with the exclusive human milk diet. And with the shorter course to full feedings, that equates to a reduction in central line days. That means that pick line, that umbilical line is getting out sooner, which means we have to provide less total parental nutrition. TPN usage is way down. Uh, and with that together, that leads to decreased CLABSI. The fewer line days equals less opportunity for a bloodstream infection. Yes, that is a great key take-home message. Quicker time to full feeds with an exclusive human milk diet that's better tolerated means fewer line days, which means less opportunity for those blood infections. Um, in the study that I did with uh, Dr. Amy Hare at Texas Children's Hospital, along with three other large NICUs and almost 1,600 babies, we found that the incidence of late-onset sepsis reduced significantly when the babies got the exclusive human milk diet. So at your NICU, what other benefits have you been seeing when you have been using the exclusive human milk diet? Well, we have seen uh, um, an improvement in growth. and uh, We've had stable growth. We've just collated all our data since 2016, and we average 16 grams per kilo per day on the diet. Um, we currently are transitioning our babies off the exclusive human milk diet at about 1,250 grams, and we continue donor milk uh, with that population out to 34 weeks corrected age. We've been able to maintain stable head, length, growth as well, and our prolactive babies do look great at follow-up. This is a purely anecdotal statement I'll make. I have not collated our long-term outcome uh, data at our developmental follow-up clinic, but it is a goal for 2021. We'd like to 
dive into those babies a little bit more closely and compare them to our previous cohort of babies prior to the onset of an exclusive human milk diet. So look forward to that uh, in the coming year. And the other big change we made in our NICU was we stopped the routine checking of gastric residuals. Typically, the practice was for the nurse to aspirate everything that was in the stomach, take a good look at it and go, ooh, is this good or is this bad? Now, we just check that the tube is adequately placed in the stomach, and then we give the feed. And we have had great compliance with that. I thought that would be a big issue for our nurses, but they've actually done really well with that. And we've seen no change or no increase in Oregon necrotizing enterocolitis with the practice. But we've only had four incidents of neck in four years. So we have such a low rate anyway. Well, that's really great to hear that you have such low neck rate. Changing those practices around stopping gastric residual checks is a big accomplishment. So well done. And then I'm also excited to hear about your new project upcoming for the next year on post-discharge growth. I'm always interested in hearing how well preemies are growing. So back to about the, the sepsis risk, what can we talk about next about how uh, improved outcomes using the exclusive human diet are accomplished? An article recently published in Advances in Neonatal Care in 2019 with Delaney Manthe et al. Uh, included infants that received an exclusive human milk diet, and they compared them to their control group of similar babies born in a period uh, prior to the implementation of the exclusive human milk, and these babies received a cow's milk-based fortifier. And one of their notable findings was a substantial reduction in late-onset sepsis evaluations. That's that sepsis workup with the implementation of excluded human milk diet when they compared it to the control group that received the cow's milk-based fortifier. It was a reduction from 68 to 55.8%. And that sepsis evaluation, it's a costly thing. Uh, babies have to experience multiple painful episodes of venipunctures for blood cultures and lab work, IV sticks and IV attempts so we could administer antibiotics, and that increases healthcare costs which includes stopping feedings potentially, more use of TPN, um, the use of vascular access devices and the risks associated, medications, x-rays. And we know that late onset sepsis increases length of stay. So a reduction in just working a baby up for sepsis is a huge uh, positive when you look at the diet, not to mention um, the risks of a poor outcome or even death when babies experience sepsis in the NICU. Another notable paper was by Abrams and colleagues in 2014, and this was in breastfeeding medicine. They wanted to evaluate the exclusive human milk diet on the health of extremely premature babies, and these were less than 1,250 grams. They evaluated 260 babies with two studies that they combined and did a meta-analysis. And the significant finding was that for every 10% increase in the volume of milk that contained the cow's milk-based fortifier, the risk of sepsis was increased by nearly 18%. Another way to think of this is that the more human milk in the diet, the more likely an extremely premature baby is going to stay free from late onset sepsis. That's a major difference, almost a 20% increase in infection risk for every 10% increase in the diet with cow's milk. That's something that we can actually make changes about in our NICU. So what are some other key points to help NICUs practically improve their rate of infection? Well, Kelly, I'm glad you asked. 
Prolacta uh, plans to share a technical bulletin soon on infection prevention and the exclusive human milk diet, so stay tuned. One area that's highlighted is the initiation of early aggressive internutrition with colostrum and human milk, preferably mother's own milk. And this means prioritizing the use of fresh colostrum, improving mother's own milk supply, and beginning colostrum feedings early in the mouth. And that early aggressive intranutrition and early trophic feedings we know helps improve babies' uh, advancement to full feeds. Another section um, highlights the hands-on practices that are so practical, chlorhexidine gluconate for skin antisepsis, uh, assessing central line dressings every day, having a robust team that evaluates, is that line necessary today? Can it come out? And then hub care. Maintenance of vascular access lines are very important, and I believe hub care is the number one thing that we can do to prevent infection with these lines. And then I do a root cause analysis. I analyze and take down every positive blood culture to try to find out what was the root cause and what improvements can we make to prevent another one. And finally, I cannot overstate it enough, it's a very hot topic, antibiotic stewardship. It's important that we limit the use of extended exposure of empiric antibiotics, especially bob-spectrum antibiotics to our premature population. We um, used to have a practice where we would just give antibiotics because it made us feel better, that it was somehow providing protection in the NICU from infection. But we've actually found without confirmed laboratory evidence of infection, it's actually detrimental. Neonatal antibiotic use can alter the neonatal biome, uh, the microbiome and lead to gut dysbiosis. And it also can lead to a higher rate of late onset uh, infection and babies exposed to potential antibiotic resistance. And then we've also seen that necrotizing enterocolitis and mortality can increase in NICUs that routinely use a lot of empiric broad spectrum antibiotics. Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate your great expertise on this topic, and I'm glad that we were able to come to you for, for such this important topic about sepsis and its impact on our babies in the NICU. I'm glad we could take this time on the podcast to cover it. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to make, your, make sure that our listeners know? Thank you, Kelly. Well, I would like to acknowledge my, my dear friend and um, mentor, colleague, Dr. Janet Pettit, Janet is no longer with us, but she shaped my entire neonatal career, and she is the reason that I carried a torch to prevent sepsis in the NICU. Um, I often quote her that she used to have a statement, she would say, more babies are celebrating more birthdays because of our efforts to protect them from infection, and that we should believe in zero. And that means zero infections in the NICU. It can be accomplished. What a wonderful mentor. Thank you for bringing her up so that we can acknowledge and celebrate her with you. Thank you so much. Uh, we know that the consequences of sepsis can be devastating, and an exclusive human milk diet does appear to help babies reach full feeds faster with better feeding tolerance so that those IV lines can be removed and that the risk of infections are removed along with those. Thanks to our listeners. As always, links for information discussed will be available in the show notes. And as always, we look forward to bringing you future topics on the science of human knowledge.